Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. We're in the last month of 2019. It is flown by. It is pretty crazy. We're coming into a year of perfect clarity, 2020, right? The world is in chaos. I would hope that God blesses us with perfect clarity during this next year. As we close out our theme of love this year, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not, that's not our passage of scripture for today, but that's been our passage of scripture for the year. And we've been looking at the definition of love in verses four through seven. Today we look at the aspect of love that never loses faith. Now, not all translations actually use the word faith here. They actually say love believes all things. But belief and, and faith are, two in the, are one and the same. They are very closely connected. And so the New Living Testament actually translates this as love never loses faith. When I started to think about what aspect of faith and love coincide together as the best example to really mirror this for our Advent season, I couldn't come up with the traditional Christmas sermon series. And so if you came expecting that this month, I apologize. I think, however, we look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is really the main uh, treaties of faith in scripture. Now, Paul gives us some in Romans and, and some of his other letters, but when we think about faith and the definition of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one and two, really kind of hammer that out for us and give us a very clear definition of what faith is. And so if love never loses faith, we need to know what faith is so that we don't lose it, right? And so Hebrews 11 is what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next month. And you say, well, how does that fit with, with Christmas? Well, ironically, as we read through the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, we find many of the stories we've talked about throughout this whole year. That love is patient, it's kind, it's not rude or self-seeking, it doesn't boast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if we go through the whole book, uh, uh, the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, we see some of these same characters that by faith they continued to do what they did for the glory of God. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God for a son and God delivered a son to him. Now, we could look at Abraham and give a more bro broken down aspect of that and say, well, he, were, he faltered in his faith at times because he gave in to his wife who said, why don't you take Hagar, my servant girl, and have a child with her since obviously it's not gonna happen with me. And so we could look at that and we could see at times that Abraham got scared and uh, that, that he would be killed if people saw the beauty of his wife uh, and would take her as their own. And so he said that Sarah was his sister on two different occasions. So his faith faltered, but 
as we read the author of Hebrews, it says, ultimately the faith that Abraham had was counted to him as righteousness. And we go through multiple different characters. We're gonna be looking at, at this chapter throughout the course of this month. Finally ending up on Christmas Eve with this aspect of love that all of those people looked toward. Abraham, Moses, all of the crew throughout the whole Old Testament looked forward to a day that you and I now experience. They looked forward to a day where there would be a Messiah who would come to set the captives free, who would raise up a banner of salvation and freedom and righteousness. They could only dream of that day. And then Jesus came, he died on a cross, he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, and before that gave us a commission that we should go and make disciples. That's what the church's mission is, to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. And that's why our vision is what it is today at North Main Street Church of God. There is no other mission for the church but God's mission for the church. No matter which church you go to, if they have a mission different than God's mission, don't go to that church. That's blatantly put. You should be a part of a church that is going scripturally by what God says to do and what he says not to do. And specifically, if you are a church that is a great commission church, going and making disciples, baptizing in his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commanded, not what we think we should do, then that's a pretty good place to be. And so as we unfold and unpack this today, what is it about love that never loses faith? How does love not lose faith? Who does love not lose faith in? And so I had the whole scripture, I was gonna read through whole, the whole chapter 11 today, but I'm not. I'm just gonna read you the first three verses and then we're gonna jump in today. Um, you've heard me say this uh, illustration before, uh, I'm gonna say it again because I think it is very uh, clear in what it illustrates in regards to faith. Have you ever heard of the African Impala? The African Impala can jump at a height of over 10 feet high. That's about the height that I fell off my roof. I can't jump that high, but I sure can fall that far. But an Impala can jump the height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of greater than 30 feet in one leap. 30 feet, think about that. I can jump uh, uh, probably two feet in one leap. Two feet, not very much. These magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure in a zoo with a wall that's three feet high. Think of that. They can jump 10 feet, they can jump a distance of 30 feet, yet they can be kept in a zoo with a wall that's only three feet high. What's, what's the deal? The animals will not jump if they can't see where their feet will land. And so they can't see on the other side of this wall, this three foot wall. And so they're held back from jumping at all. So a three foot wall can keep an animal who can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet long. Faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear allows to entrap us. Some of us today believe in God in this place. Some of you may not. But what does your belief in God do for you? 
Does it press you in? Does it cause, cause you to take that leap? Or are you afraid in an enclosure of a three-foot wall because you don't know what lies beyond the outside of it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Faith is a confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things that we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And then verse three, and we'll close with this one uh, today. We'll pick up the other verses next week. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Now, we're going to break that down because it seems a little confusing at first sight, and so we're going to unpack that. And I think it's important to be a student of the Word and to really understand what it means because you shouldn't just gloss over Scripture. When you dedicate yourself to the study of the Word, you should want to know what it means. And if you don't know what it means, you should seek out its understanding and its meaning. And so... I'm not saying you should be Greek scholars or Hebrew scholars, but I want to break down the two words within those first two verses about what faith is. So the first point this morning is this, but actually the key point is faith is confident assurance devoid of things seen. That's pretty much the nutshell of these couple of verses. Well, what does that look like? Well, faith is a hypostasis, and there's your big word for today, that is a Greek word in this context that actually means substance, confidence, essence, or assurance, all right? That's the word that the author of Hebrews uses to describe what faith is in this context. It is the hypostasis of things hoped for. It is the substance. It is the confidence of things hoped for. It is the essence of what we hope for, or it's the assurance of what we hope for. When we are assured of something, what does that mean? We know it's going to happen. We've been told. We believe it. We know it with everything in us that this is true. It's the same thing with confidence. You know, one of the other way, places that this word confidence is used is that we can approach the throne room of grace with boldness. The same word for boldness is confidence here. We can approach God's throne room now confidently because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. So if we have faith and belief in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to have an advocate go before us to make an animal sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. We can now come into the throne room of grace and say, Jesus, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, so we don't have to have anybody else intercede in a temple for us because Jesus did that for all of us. That's why in John chapter 3, 16, we have these famous words from Jesus to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who came to Jesus in the dark of night, and, and Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, I have no clue what you're talking about. How can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, you're stupid. Actually, that's not what he says. I just want to see if you're listening. He says to Nicodemus, you just don't get it. If you, you, you're born from your mother one time, but I'm not talking about being fleshly born. I'm talking about being spiritually born. You need to be born of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be born of the Holy Spirit? Well, he gives us a glimpse into what this means. It's what I love about Jesus is he unpacks this for people that truly want to know. And he says, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you have confidence? Do you have assurance? Do you have the substance within you and the essence within you to believe in what you hope for? That's why Jesus is constantly saying in the scriptures, in the the gospels, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So what are some things we hope for, we think of, we pray for, or some things maybe that we have faith in that we even take for granted? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. One of the stories of, of the Bible, I think, that shows us this amazing kind of faith, even in the face of imminent death, is a story we actually looked at earlier this year in the book of Daniel. And there are three characters there, and, and their, their uh, Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story? You might remember it from Sunday school as a little kid or vacation Bible school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace. But listen to this story. I think this is amazing. In chapter 3, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. Why? Because they would not bow before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar made. Because they believe there is one God and it's not that idol that you made. And so we're not going to bow before a false God or or an idol carved in the hands of men. We believe in the true God of heaven and earth. And so they wouldn't do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar flies into this rage. He says, bring them before me. Now, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar had these three men as a part of his royal uh, uh, assistants. They had a high power and authority within the land, just as much as Daniel did. But he has them brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or worship the golden statue that I've set up? I give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, that's your cue. Do it. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what, will God, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Think of this for a minute. That golden furnace was a place where they offered burnt sacrifices to those idols and those gods. There were babies thrown into the fire. There were other people thrown into the fire. There were animals thrown into the fire. That was a blazing furnace that stayed lit most of the time because they were offering sacrifices to the Babylonian gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, however, replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown in to the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Now, here's here's the cool thing about this. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. 
You see, here's the interesting thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith in God. They believed he could save them from the fiery furnace, but they also knew the possibility existed that they may get burned up in the fire. But regardless of what it was, they're still going to have faith in their God. They're not going to bow down to that idol. I see people in our day, in our age, in our culture that don't believe in any God, but they worship that which is most important to them. You may be atheistic. You may be an agnostic. You may not believe in anything but you, then you have made yourself the God of your life, and you have become your own idol. And that is as much a sinful deed as it is in anything else in life. You say, well, I don't care if it's sinful or not. It doesn't hurt anybody but me. But the thing is, if I'm promoting myself as the perfect ideal for what is right and wrong, then what happens when my ideal conflicts with somebody else's? You see, that's the problem we find ourselves in culture today because we've lost a moral center. We've lost a moral center as a country, as church in our culture, and we believe that it's pretty much whatever you want to do is okay, and whatever I want to do is okay, and whenever that conflicts, then we take it to the court system. Well, did you know our our Judeo-Christian values that are in our courts supposedly are found, or not supposedly, but should be and have been founded and rooted in Judeo-Christian values in Scripture? But ironically, we're taking those things out of the courtroom. We don't even want the Ten Commandments there, even though our legal system is based on that. And so we slipped in from a modern era into what we call a postmodern era. How many of you understand what I mean by postmodernism? Postmodernism is a philosophy that was taught in the colleges and in the academic realms and the, high, uh, the places of, of high intellect and thinking, and usually it comes a generation after. So the modern era during the Enlightenment was, was what was believed as the, the, where the scientific method comes from. We've now moved out of the modern era, and we are now in what's called a postmodern era. And the postmodern era actually says there is no objective truth. There is no right or wrong. Whatever is right and wrong for you may be different from somebody else. Everything is relative. (laughs) That was taught in the early 1900s and the late 1800s, and now we are seeing the consequences of that being taught and now lived out throughout our culture through the end of the 20th century, now coming into the 21st century. We are coming to a pinnacle of faithlessness within a culture that has basically tossed reason out of the picture. I think it is very reasonable to have faith in a God you cannot see. I think it is more reasonable than to not believe in anything because we actually have evidence in things that we can't see. But I digress. What are some things you put faith in that you take for granted? What are some things you put faith in? People put faith in the hands of their surgeon to actually fix their bodies or fix the things that are broken in their bodies. They willingly place themselves in in the hands of a surgeon who's going to knock them out. They will be completely out of control of their own bodies so that that surgeon can cut them open and fix what's broken in their bodies. What kind of faith does it take to subject yourself to that? What about when you get behind the wheel of a car and you drive out of the parking lot today? You take for granted your brakes are going to work. 
You take for granted the, the actual functions and mechanics of your car are going to get you from point A to point B safely. You think that everything's going to work right. So you put even the minimalist amount of faith in the brakes in your car. People put faith in the mechanics that they send their vehicles to. Hopefully, if you found a good mechanic, you know they're going to find the problem and fix it, and they're not going to charge you an arm and a leg for it. People put faith in the sports teams at the beginning of each season. This is going to be our year. Yes? Until a few games end, you're like, well, we got next year. <laughs> but you put faith in your sports teams. People put faith in their jobs, in their employers. They get up each morning going in without a thought that their job might not be there when they get there. I know that happens, but most people get up unaware and just get ready and step into their place of employment expecting their job to still be there. They have faith in their job. They may hate their job. They may not like their employer, but you can see by their actions they believe it's going to be there when they get there. So if people can put faith in these kind of things, then why is it unreasonable to put faith in God? If there is a God, if he created everything, including you and me, and if he loves us so much that he would send his one and only son to die for our sins when we believe in him, that we would have eternal life, then doesn't it make sense to put our, play, our faith, our trust in him? Wouldn't it make sense to put our hope in him? There should have been some amens there, but I'm guessing I'm speaking to an empty room. I don't know. Seriously, wouldn't it make sense? What would be lost if you took a step of faith in God? What would be lost? What would be lost if you didn't? Potentially everything. You might say, but I don't believe there is a God. If you want to take that gamble, that's on you. But what if you're wrong? That's a big gamble for your eternity. If I'm wrong and I have faith in God, that there is a God, I think I've lived a pretty fulfilling life. You might say, yeah, but you've lived a lie. But I've lived a good life. I've lived a life that's wholesome and pure and good. I don't have any regrets. And so if I come to the end of my days and I die only to find out that it wasn't real, I won't even know it if it's not real. But if it is real and I've lived for myself or idolizing this idea that there is no God, that I'm up a creek because I only get one chance and there is only one name in who people can be saved. There is one gate in John chapter 10. There is one way, one truth, and one life. And no one can come to the Father except by him. And that's something I don't want to gamble with. I, I uh, have done in the past 20 years, gosh, probably well over 100 funerals. And I would dare say that many of those, actually, many of those I know were people that didn't have a faith or a belief in Christ. And the families look at me and want me to give them hope, and I do the best I can. 
But in situations like that, all that I can say is only God knows. That maybe within the last few seconds, in the last breath, they just uttered these words, even in the thoughts of their minds, because God knows our thoughts. Oh God, forgive me. And how sorrowful is it for the family who doesn't know or doesn't have that assurance of things hoped for, even for their loved ones? The other part of this, real quick, is this. Faith is the elenchos of the things not seen. What is elenchos? That's the Greek word for, for the words proof or conviction or evidence. Depending on your translation of scripture, you might see proof, conviction, or evidence as one of the words here. Faith is the proof of things not seen. It is the conviction of things not seen, or it is the evidence of things not seen. In verse 3, the writer of Hebrews reminds us from the very point of creation that the entire universe was created by God's command, and that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So what he's saying is this, what you can see in this world around you came from nothing. It came from a God who created everything, but we call this ex nihilo in the Old Testament. In the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, what now we can see. And actually, do you know science is pointing in that direction? It has been over the past several decades that what we now see through the molecular structure of things and how things came into being, there had to be a creator. There is too much design in creation for things to have just haphazardly coalesced and come together in the right formulas, the right amino acids, the right amount of proteins, even for a single-celled organism like an amoeba or a protozoa. To have that level of complication and design at a single cell, now bring it up to the point of human existence. Just the imminent design in the human body. Or even in animals. Or in plant life or trees. Or on a macro level, at a universal level. How does this law of gravity work? These law of physics that work at the molecular level as, as well as the universal level. These, these forces within creation, how do they work? Well, scientists have been working on this stuff for centuries, for millennia, all the way back to Greek and ancient Greece. These philosophers would speculate based on, based on geometry and different things, how things balanced out and how they worked. And though the church gets a bad rap through the ages of thinking, uh, oh, well, the earth was flat or, or that the earth was the center of the universe and we get really pummeled. You know, the church has been growing and understanding and learning as sciences have been showing us details of things. There's a book out called Darwin's Doubt, which is a fairly thick book and, and I'm still chipping away at it. But Darwin had a doubt. This is Charles Darwin, who we call the father of evolutionary theory in his book, uh, The, the uh, Origin of Species. Darwin's Doubt is written by uh, a physicist and, uh, uh, and he, he breaks down the actual historical documents where, where Darwin says, 
I could be really wrong because he didn't have the evidence at his disposal to be able to show what we can now see through modern technology. That missing link, if you will. He says, there is, all of my theory will implode if this evidence is not found in the future. But he had enough belief in his own theory that he believed that there would be evidence to prove it, except over the past century and a half, Science is actually showing that his theory can be debunked. And there are even now agnostic and atheistic scientists that are saying, yeah, we can't go there. I know that's been the modern thought and I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm committing intellectual suicide uh, from my colleagues, but I can't continue to believe this stuff. Science doesn't back this. You don't have to take my word for it. Do your own research. And don't do a biased research. Do as unbiased a research as you can. Look both sides of the argument with regard to Scripture, with regard to science. Check it out because God will reveal himself. I promise you that if you're truly seeking with an open heart. But listen to this. There are atheists that are now, uh, who are biological, uh, molecular biologists, physicists who are, who are saying these things. And I think I've quoted them to you before, but listen to this. Uh, Dr. George Wald, who is a Nobel laureate in physiology and medicine and one time professor of biology at Harvard, listen to what he says. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising from evolution, the, the primordial soup and, and us coming from single cell to multi-cell to more complex organisms over time and that all organisms come from this one place in time. He says, that's one way that we can look at this, but there are really only two ways to look at this, that everything came together by spontaneous generation arising from evolution. The other is supernatural creative act of God. It's one of those two ways. It can't be any number of other ways. There is no third possibility, he says. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was specifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others through the pasteurization process. This is a basic science stuff he's talking about. That leaves us with only one possible, I want you to hear this. If you've fallen asleep, wake up for just a couple seconds. Because listen to what he says. Since Louis Pasteur and other scientists have disproved the evolutionary theory and that things came together through spontaneous generation, he says that leaves us with only one possible conclusion that life arose as a creative act of God. But listen to what he says. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising from evolution. And you have people like this teaching in our colleges. They know what's true. but they don't want to believe it. It's a willful rejection of faith. He's saying, science is proving this. There's evidence there. There's elenchos there. That something had to make this work. That it wasn't just happenstance. 
non-creationist H.P. Jockey, who is also a physicist and an information theorist who worked on the Oppenheimer, excuse me, who worked with Oppenheimer on the Manhattan Project. Do you know what that is? Some of you from the World War II generation may know what this is. Who worked with Oppenheimer on the Manhattan Project, the study of the atomic bomb, okay? Basically where that came from. So H.P. Yaki says this, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith and strict reductionism and is based on entirely an ideology. He says it takes faith to believe that life arose spontaneously through the evolutionary process. You can call me a fool. I challenge you, do your own research from both sides. Paul Davies, a physicist at Arizona State University writes, we now know the secret of life lies not with the chemical ingredients as such, but with the logical structure and organizational arrangement of molecules. Biological information is not encoded in laws of physics and chemistry, and it cannot come into existence spontaneously. There is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. This is the teleological perspective in the defense of God. The teleological defense of God is this. If I go to one of the most desolate planets in the world, which is pretty much any other planet but Earth, say I go to Mars and I, I'm walking there and I find, I find an Apple Watch laying on the planet, okay? Let's just say I do that. I have one of two things to assume. Wow, that just spontaneously generated itself. Or somebody has been here that had that, or somebody made it. But I know it had to be created, but did, did all of the pieces, what are the chances that all of the pieces just naturally came together to create this piece of technology? You see, that's what scientists are now seeing. There's so much imminent design. Information technology people, those that work with computers know that you have to program a computer in order for it to to do the things it needs to do. There has to be a main programmer because a computer just won't program itself. But now you can pro- program a computer. Now we, we have this, if you read some of these articles out there about AI, it's getting crazy. Seriously, it's getting scary crazy. Where they can program computers to do things that can learn on their own and program other stuff. That's beyond imagination. But there are programmers now, that, that there has to be an initial program to start the computer. Davies goes on to write, calculate the odds against producing just one, uh, just the proteins necessary for a minimally complex life form. It's something like 10 to the 40,000th to one. And I have that on the screen. So can we look at that real quick? So that's a protozoa. It's a single celled organism. They typically live in the ocean and and they just kind of filter feed. Kind of like SpongeBob, he filter feeds. So, uh, but SpongeBob is a multi-celled organism. This is just a protozoa, but this is, in order for this one single-celled life form, this is what Paul Davies says, to come into existence, it's something like if you were to try to create this in the lab, it is 10 to the 40,000th. Now, those of you who are math wizards, and I am definitely not one, that looks something like this. Take it to the next slide. 
That's 40,000 zeros. I actually did count those out this week. I'm not kidding. And I, I wanted to make sure. That's 40, so it's 10 to the 40,000th. Okay? 40,000 zeros. That's 10 with 40,000 zeros behind it. That's, that's the ratio or, or the possibility of life just spontaneously coming into existence. If you, if you doubt whether there's 40,000 zeros on there, I'll, I'll send you the PowerPoint. You can count them out, okay? Before we go on to the next slide, what do you think the chances are of winning the Pennsylvania Lottery Powerball, the big one? You want to take a guess? You have a better chance of winning the lottery than life coming into existence. And here's the difference. Show the, show the picture of the PA lottery. You have 10 to the eighth power to one of winning the lottery. That looks like this next slide. <laughs> there you go. Do you see that? And we know that that's possible because people do it. It's in the newspaper, it's on the TV. So-and-so won the multi-million, hundreds million dollar Powerball and, or these people won it. Now it's divided between them. Okay, you can take that down. Thank you. If honest and reasonable atheists can admit that there's evidence from design for a creator designer, then what is it that holds people back from faith and belief in God? Fear. Go all the way back to the Impala. They're not willing to take that leap because they don't want to. Because they know if I take that leap across the fence, then I'm gonna, there are going to have to be changes in my life. Some people have so idolized what they do and who they are that they don't want to change from this into that because they know it would require a pr pretty much a paradigm shift for them. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And it's too much of a leap for them. And there's fear in what lies over that wall. And so they choose not to believe. They choose not to hold out hope that there's anything beyond this life. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, it's a whole book, Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who was the wisest man in the world, who had amassed so much wealth and riches, had, 700, uh, or had 300 wives and 700 concubines, had 1,000 women at his disposal. He comes to the end of life and says pretty much, it's all in vain. I've spent my life pursuing desires and joys. There is nothing that I haven't been able to have, and it all comes up empty. But he concludes by saying that the pursuit in God is the most important thing. That in which you cannot see, but who there is evidence to believe in. The main reason that people refuse to believe is simple. I think it's not only fear, but selfishness. Think about that Nobel laureate that I mentioned earlier who's a professor at Harvard. He says, I know the evidence out there. I know what it says, but I choose not to believe. I don't want to. And when, it's, when, when you say, I don't want to, you're inverting into the self and saying, I want what I want, and I don't care what's true or not. Many people refuse to have faith in God because, because it would require changes in their life, like I mentioned. 
but they're willing to risk their eternity on temporal pleasures of the here and now rather than worry about life in the hereafter. The sad reality is we are not given the promise of tomorrow. We're only given the gift of the present. And if we let that slip away, as many have, we risk such great a loss. The 20th century evangelist Oswald Chambers wrote this about faith. Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things that are only learned in a fiery furnace. So question this morning as our worship team comes forward. How is your faith? What, what is your faith rooted in? See, you may say you have no faith, but we all have faith. We were all created in the image of God, and we were created as faithful beings. We all have faith in something. Maybe your faith isn't rooted in a God you can't see. Maybe your faith is only rooted in you, but your faith is always rooted in something. Where have you planted your faith? Does your faith have substance, confidence, and assurance that what you hope for will actually happen? Does your faith have, uh, give witness through conviction and evidence of things that you can't see? We all love. The question is, who or what do you love? We all have faith. The question is, who or what do you have faith in? Salvation comes through faith in God through Christ Jesus. What a shame it would be to know about God but never trust and believe and have the faith in him. Paul reminds us of this one very important truth in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Here's the appeal. There's always an appeal, right? This is the tearjerker moment. Brandon's going to try to get me to make a decision. No, I'm... Honestly, how many times over the past seven years have I stood on this stage trying to make an appeal? But Brandon, I have faith. Some of you claim to have it, but there's no evidence. Truth be known. Some of you believe in God or say you do, but you're living sinful lifestyles right now. God, I believe in you, but I still want to do what I want to do. And you've bound yourself to slavery to yourself and to those things that you want to do rather than those things that you know God would desire of you. Now, you are not saved by your works, so don't get me wrong here. You are saved by grace through faith. But if faith is anything, without works, it's dead. That's what James tells us in James chapter 2. It's a both and, not an either or. They are, they are these uh, symbiotic relationship. Do you know what symbiotic relationship means? It means the one can't exist without the other. If you are truly a person of faith, you're going to be living a life of faith. It's not just going to be a token thing you say as you go about, oh yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. Then show me by the evidence of how you live your life. It's as simple as that. God doesn't complicate things. 
What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a list of do's and don'ts as much as it is living a life of love. So I close with that today. And if you feel the need that you want to make a commitment of faith today or restore a commitment of faith that you've just been living in name only, and you want somebody to pray with you and walk with you through that, you can come to my right, your left. These altars are open. If you just want to reconcile with God on your own, you come to my left, your, your right. You can pray in your pew. Guess what? It's still like God meets you where you are. But there's something about stepping out. Physically moving yourself from one place to another. Jumping over that wall of fear and anxiety. Let's pray. Father, we give you our lives today. We give you ourselves knowing that you are the author and creator of faith. The author and creator of everything we can see. That God, we have enough evidence in the world around us to believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that at the end of each day of creation, you said, hey, it's good. It's good. Help us to see not with eyes, but God, help us to see with our spirit, to have confidence in what we can't see believing wholeheartedly and taking that step of faith in your direction. Clear our doubts, and when we do doubt, God, help us to rise above the wind and the waves to continue to pursue you. Whether we are consumed by the fire or whether you rescue us from it, help us to maintain a life of love that never loses faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.